And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Greetings and welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Mike Trout is coffee. At Starbucks with a double latte, skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. (laughs) Greetings and welcome to Starkville. Now part of the athletic baseball show where you'll find great baseball talk all week long and all season long. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for The Athletic. Joined once again by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer, and the voice of Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN Radio, Doug Glanville. Uh, Doug, there's a rumor going around that you're actually going to hang out with me for the whole show this week, as, as opposed to your last few weeks of travel adventures. Any truth to that? Yes. I, I'm I'm here. I'm here for the duration. Starkville has been reunited again. Uh, you know, it was just it was we were just closed for business for a couple of uh, of, of moments, and the ice cream shop had to close. Uh, but we will open up a new one today. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to shopping for ice cream uh, with you back here in your home away from airports, Starkville. Yes. Uh, but look, speaking of travel adventures, how'd your trip to Atlanta go this weekend? Pretty smoothly. Uh, the opposite of smooth, whatever that is. <laughs> what um, is that? Thankfully, I did get to Atlanta, clearly. I, I got to the game. I happened to get there. I left the night before, uh, and I didn't get there until the next day. And uh, given that when you leave at 8 o'clock at night, that's not supposed to happen on a 30-minute flight. So you can do the math. We proceeded to leave five hours uh, late. And uh, it was very interesting. You know, we're, you're, I'm in Asheville, North Carolina. Not a very big terminal. There's like one building type of thing. And, um, you know, at a certain hour, everybody's gone. Everything's closed. TSA is like, see you later. Good luck. So everything's down. So once you go through the gate after that, TSA closes. You, if you leave, you can't come back. <laughs> so um, so we get, we're sitting on the plane, and the, which was interesting because the pilot comes out himself, walks out. I was like, this probably isn't good. Uh, you know, he's like, has the phone. He's, he's like, is a stand-up comedian. And he's just like, yeah, look, minor, minor issue. There's a slight tear in the tire. No biggie. I'm sure we're going to get the guy out here and he's going to tell us, hey, non-issue, just go fly. So we're like, okay. So we're all sitting there. It's cool. And um, so we're like, well, where is this guy? He's like, well, he's a contractor. We don't really have anybody on staff. So we have to get him to work now. We have to contract and find this guy. So I was like, that didn't sound quick. So he's like, yeah, he might be home sleeping or at the barbecue, but we'll find him. So that was one issue. So eventually he comes back and says, everybody can deplane. 
Uh, we, you know, it's the guy. It turns out that we need this guy, and he's actually in Atlanta. I was like, well, that's funny. We're that's where we're going. No, no, no. We have to get him from Atlanta to check the tire. I was like, so he has to fly from Atlanta. So all right, whatever. So we get off the plane. And we're sitting around there. And then the latest, the next update is they're pulling luggage and all this other stuff. But the main thing that I pulled from this is once they, I was like, I'm here for the duration because my stop is Atlanta. That's my final destination. So I'm riding all the way with this pilot, no matter what, because he was like, you know, determined that he was going to get out of there. (laughs) But we started to wonder, is it really efficient to fly some guy from Atlanta to check a tire now, what if can, can the same guy change the tire? That was a problem. So finally, a flight comes in, a late flight comes in from somewhere, and they, they make the wise decision to say, hey, why don't you take this plane instead of trying to fly some dude from Charlotte and all this other stuff to fix it? One guy to come in to check if it's cut and tells you, hey, your tire's slashed. The next guy comes in, says, we need another dude to change the actual tire. <laughs> uh, I didn't think we were getting out of there. So happy ending is I landed in Atlanta at like 2.20 in the morning. Uh, and so that was that was delirious, but I did do a wonderful game. So yeah. it was worth it all. Yeah. yeah. So then they would have had to find uh, the airline equivalent of Pep Boys, right? So they could have yes. bought a jack for the plane to change so the tire. After, I asked about AAA. <laughs> they didn't have AAA, so that was on them. Okay, you could... Could have taken an Uber like uh, one of our guests. You know, we're, we are really on quite a roll of travel stories. We have to do a Twitter poll at some point in the travel debacle of the year. But anyway, enough of that. Uh, we just had quite a weekend of baseball. So, uh, Doug, let, let's quickly rip through uh, some of the big stories in baseball from this weekend before we get to our great guest this week, Tony Gwynn. Junior to talk Padres and growing up with his legendary dad. And first story, Freddie Freeman went back mm. to Atlanta for the first time as a Dodger. Doug, you were there. It was emotional. I'm not sure I've ever seen that much emotion from any player returning to play his old team, at least not for three days, with tears and ovations. There was even a little booing when he came up Saturday with the bases loaded. So, Doug. What did you think of what you witnessed? Wow. That, you know, it, it's something that as a player, you, you wish that for the goodness of the game, that there's just that level of respect for someone. And not only the fact that, you know, he's beloved in Atlanta, clearly, and you did envision him to have his whole career there. But on the other side, you know, he's you know been welcomed with his tremendous talents in Los Angeles. And he's one of those figures that will kind of be universally celebrated. So in, in some senses, although he's not, you know, this lifelong brave, he's kind of spread the love and and uh, his sensitivity and his just insight. And, and I think, you know, we talked to Dave Roberts before the game. <clears throat> and, you know, we talked about, you know, this question of moving on. I know when I came up, they were like, oh, you know, uh, what do they used to say? Like, you know, just move on or whatever, like <laughs> cut the cord. That's what we say. Cut the cord, cut the cord. It's over. And uh, when guys would be sentimental or talking, we had, you know, anti-fraternization rules and all these things that were enforced sometimes. So there wasn't this sense, but Dave Roberts was like, look, it's healthy. You know, you came from a place, you were an icon, you thought you were retiring. It's disappointing how it ended up and you're still dealing with it. And Freddie Freeman does it very openly. I thought that was a different 
you know, sense of just what it can mean. And and it does, and he said, and by the way, when he gets in that batter's box, he's an assassin. So don't forget that. So, um, but I watched that moment, that first at bat, and the ovation, of course. But remember, Spencer Strider was pitching for the Braves, and this is a young guy. He's twenty three years old. You know, he's new to this, and he's facing this legend. And Freeman was just overwhelmed and kept taking these deep breaths. And he looked like he was going to break down at any minute. Walks around the box and he does all that. And Strider steps off the mound like he kind of, you know, Freeman gestures at him and he kind of gives him his time. And it was cool to see that kind of understanding. It's a young guy. And, you know, when you're trying to speed up, you know, you're trying to get things going and he's getting into a rhythm. He's like, no, no, I'm going to give you your due. <clears throat> Excuse me. I thought that was that was really powerful. And. I think when Freeman eventually made out on the way back, you know, across the field, he kind of tapped Strider, you know, kind of gestured to him. So, you know, that's to me, that's a beautiful thing to watch. Yeah, I'm trying to get you out, but there's sportsmanship, there's etiquette, there's legends that we respect. It's like me playing against my brother in wiffle ball. Love my brother. We're trying to beat each other into the ground, but in the end, we hug it out and we, you know, go for ice cream. So that's that's what to me Freeman represents. And uh, yeah, it was it was an honor to be there because I think it was really powerful to see someone come home and be so in, in beloved, and yet still come back and get you know take the lead in the, in a double late in the game and saying, "You remember, I gotta I gotta do some damage to you too, though." <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I don't want to spend a lot of time rehashing this again because we did that last week. Uh, we talked about it with Jeff Francoeur, but watching that, the the love showered upon him the love that he showered upon those people uh i just couldn't help thinking this story should not have ended this way um if they both wanted the same outcome why did this outcome happen like freddie's fine (laughs) it all worked out for him the braves are fine they got matt olsen he's a really good player um everybody will go on but this was the wrong ending to the story. And I say that as somebody who writes the stories. Okay. <laughs> All right. Next up, Astros and Yankees. Um, the Astros and Yankees played this weekend for four games. <laughs> it was absolutely epic. Every game felt like a playoff game. Uh, bookended by the two Aaron Judge walk-offs. But in between, uh, Astros combined no-hitters Saturday Yankees no hits for 16 innings. That team no hits for 16 innings, 41 hours between hits. Uh, mm. And then the Yankees come back Sunday after they almost have gotten no hit again. So, like, how about this, Doug? Uh, the Yankees just went through a four game series and they did not hold a lead when a single pitch was thrown and they still won two games. <laughs> Like, that's amazing. What did we learn about those two teams from this series? Well, when you watch it, it's like this, you know, this could be how the American League is decided. I mean, that's the level of play. I mean, it was, this took me back to the, you know, 80 playoffs between the Phillies and the Astros, right? Every, everything's extra inning. Everything's back and forth. Um, and in this case, the Astros, you're like, wow, this is a really good team that can hold this lead. But it shows how good the Yankees are because... You know, up against the wall, they still found a way to win games, and they were they were always off foot. They were on the wrong foot the whole time, and they still found a way to win. That that's a team that shows that we're out at our best, and we're still going to find a way to beat you. So, 
I, I thought I think you learned a lot about both teams, and you know we saw Dusty the weekend before, and you knew that this was a big series. So yeah, I mean, Astros could win the whole thing. Yankees can win the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's how good that that series was. Yeah, I hope there's another one of those ALCSs in store for those two teams because it was just incredible to watch, and you know it's it was perfect because the Yankees are off to this historic start. Historic. Uh, chance to be one of the great teams and great Yankee teams, which is saying something. And yet, for twenty seven since 2017 now, the road to the World Series in the American League goes through Houston always. It always goes through Houston. And the three times the Yankees have met up with them in October, it's been the Astros who won the series. We've seen the Yankees dominate all these other teams that they meet up with. N- not that team. And so I think it was m- my friend Joel Sherman suggested that in the New York Post, this was the new Yankees-Red Sox. It really does feel like the rivalry in the game. Time to welcome in this week's very special visitor to Starkville, it is Tony Gwynn Jr. Uh, does a great job as a broadcaster for the Padres. Of course, is the son of a legend and a favorite of ours. That was the late, great Tony Gwynn. Tony, it is so cool to have you here in Starkville. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on with you guys. I, I, I enjoy the show very much, and uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you. Uh, you know, Tony, all my friends in San Diego are total weather snobs, so... <laughs> I feel like I can't start <laughs> without asking, how's the weather today where you live? Are you well, expecting any blizzards or hurricanes? Well, Humidity of like 112%, anything like that? Unfortunately, I'm in Arizona right now where it's really hot. But uh, when I left yesterday, when we left San Diego yesterday, it was about 73 degrees. So it was, uh, it was typical San Diego. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad we got that out of the way. Uh, I'm sure the San Diego Chamber of Commerce thanks us. (laughs) Hey, let's start by talking a little about that team that you watch every day, the Padres. You know, I I feel like the Padres are the victim of the same phenomenon that the Giants faced last year. Like no matter what their record is, no matter what the standings say, it's like nobody assumes they're really as good as the Dodgers. And yet, I mean, they haven't had Fernando Tatis Jr. for one game all year. Yeah. Manny Machado's been out. Will Myers is out. Blake Snell and Mike Clevenger have been out. They haven't been what you'd expect. Um, and the Padres still had the fifth best record in the whole sport. So what have you seen that makes you believe this Padres team has the staying power to hang out with the Dodgers all season? I think simply put, they just play – the game the right way and what I mean by that is they don't they don't beat themselves they are built around their starting pitching and it's and it's as good as any starting pitching in baseball and then they play defense behind it they don't they very rarely make mistakes defensively and so you know when you pitch it and you catch it you're going to be in every ball game and they've had a knack for timely hitting I mean they haven't by any means set the world on fire offensively. But um, when they get opportunities for a large portion of this season so far, they've, they've cashed them in. And 
that can win you a lot of ball games when you have those ingredients. And, and Tony, um, well, first, you know, it's great to see you. Pleasure seeing you out in San Diego earlier in the year. Uh, and congratulations on, you. you know, on your work. I mean, just doing a great job. Um, you know, I guess there was a lot of change that came to San Diego. When you think about a you know, new manager, uh, Melvin, Bob Melvin coming from uh, a situation where he was in the A's and the analytics were kind of their driver. Uh, I guess what have you seen the managerial style wise, what he's brought to how they approach the game? There is a, a steadiness about Bob that this team really needed. Um, there is a, there's obviously a bunch of respect that comes with Bob Melvin. I mean, he's a two-time nationally or manager of the year, nationally and American league manager of the year. And so um, immediately when he walks into the building, he grabs attention, but that's just a piece of it. When Fernando Tatis Jr., when the news broke in spring training that he was going to miss significant time, um, most of San Diego was crushed. But what you found in that Peoria facility in Arizona was this kind of calmness and this kind of, you know, workmanlike attitude that wasn't going to allow that to be the reason why this team didn't get off to a good start. And before you knew it, I'd say within 48 hours, you could never forget about a guy like Fernando Tatis Jr., <laughs> but you kind of just moved on. And, and, and that's the approach that all these guys took. And I think that is solely because of their manager and how he approached dealing with Fernando Tatis Jr. And I say that to say, that has been kind of a, 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 a theme throughout the season for this ball club. No matter what happens, no matter who gets hurt, you know, you hear next man up so often now, but it, it truly applies to this situation and, and they just keep going and going. They, they, they tr truly do a good job of keeping it one day at a time. They don't look far ahead to see who's coming up which may be a big difference from last year, these guys focus on the day-to-day -day game, and, and I think that's served them well. Um, you know, we had Buck Schroeder here a couple weeks ago, and that term, attention to detail, mm. kept coming up with him. And I, I see the same things in Bob Melvin. Um, where have you seen that aspect of his leadership show up? You know, interestingly enough, I, I see it in their base running a lot. Uh, they're secondaries like um, it's not your typical shuffle shuffle see the ball off the bat they are an aggressive secondary team and that's just one of the places in, in which it shows up it, it also shows up in their pregame one I mean the ground balls they're taking um, you know Matt Williams is 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 one of one of the best when it comes to you know being able to teach the infield positions and, and, and getting your body in the right place. And so you have a bunch of um, really talented coaches that are all of that same kind of cloth of attention to detail. It, it comes up literally every day uh, around the ball yard. So uh, for me, that's where I notice it is in their base running. They don't, they don't get caught sleeping. They don't, they take the extra base almost every time. It, it, that's a great point. Um, hey, let me ask you about Manny Machado, too. I know Manny's been out for a little bit here with a sprained ankle. But watching him this year, it, it feels like he has taken it to a different 
level with Fernando Tatis out. Um, you know, he's been out, what, a week or so, still up there with the major league leaders and wins above replacement and yeah. win probability added at a time when his team has never needed him more. Um, do, do you imagine that or do you see it too? No, no, <laughs> it's, it's definitely not anybody's imagination. That is, <laughs> that is a fact. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think there's a, there's a, but a couple of different things going on. He just seems more comfortable, uh, in his surroundings now. Um, again, I, I, I'll go back to Bob Melvin, both him, Eric Hosmer, a few of the other vets, they just seem so more, much more at ease this year. Um, despite missing a talented player like Fernando Tatis Jr. And I think that comfort comes with a manager that is just pouring confidence into you, you know? And uh, I think that can get overlooked for guys like Manny because they're so talented and they do what they do on a consistent basis. But when you have a manager come in, especially on a team that is, a, is an uber-talented roster and has underachieved to this point, um, there's just a different way you go about your business. And Manny has been offensively to me, this is probably his best version because he's not, it, it, when he's before he got hurt, wasn't chasing. He was forcing pitchers into that rectangle box. We all see on TV now. Mm-hmm. And if you throw a pitch in there, it really doesn't matter. He's, he's going, he's going to hit it hard. Now he can't control what happens once it comes off the bat, but, there's a reason why he's at the top of the list of exit velocity uh, when it comes to the offensive players. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Yeah, Antonio, it's um, interesting because I was out there, I think it was April, the Brave series in San Diego. And when we talked to Bob Melvin, we asked him about Manny Machado, like kind of what is he going to do? You know, he's trying to learn these guys in spring training and then he gets the news. It's a shortened spring training. And one thing he described was the game is slow for Manny Machado. And he had to understand that his pacing is because of how he has almost his own clock to the game. And he's, but he's always on time. I mean, I guess, did you find that to be, uh, did, did that play out, I guess, for you is like how he described I, it? I, I think it, it, I could see that being something that Bob had to kind of learn to understand because when you watch Manny play, and I've been on the field with some talented players like Manny, and they do have their own clock. It may seem on the outside looking in as if, they're not playing hard or they're not hustling, but genuinely for those guys, the game does come slow. And so 
I think you put it phrased it perfectly. He he's always on time, no matter what his pace is. And I think that for a manager, a new manager coming into a situation, yeah, I could totally see how you would have to learn that part of, of Manny, but make no mistake about it. There's a reason why he checks in 158 to 162 games a season. He plays when he can play. There is no doubt. If he is out like he is now, he's, he's hurt. And so um, Manny is just that talented where the game comes really easy to him. And I, and I say this on the broadcast often, he'll make a play at third base and it, gives off this feel like it was routine but a lot of times it's not and i and i I have to say out loud sometimes that i'm not going to allow myself to just fall into calling a play like it's a routine play when it's not (laughs) yeah doug played with scott Rowland, right who like like he attacked every ball hit (laughs) like he needed to eat it how many different ways there are to be great i think in some ways i I think in some ways that's hurt manny um in like gold glove talk because it doesn't look difficult for him um when he makes plays and i think that's that plays a part in why he doesn't have any gold gloves or enough gold gloves at this point yeah um hey i I know there's a lot of uncertainty around Tatis's return. Um, probably have a hundred thousand people listening who have him stashing their fantasy team. <laughs> what, what's your feel for th- that situation, and what would his return mean to this team? I, I think the feel for the situation in terms of when he's going to come back. I just think there isn't a time clock because it's going to be predicted by how he feels. Um, um, in terms of what it would mean for this ball club, I mean, his energy is in itself. Without what he's going to do on the on the field, is is um, it's contagious. It's very contagious. And um, man, to get that kind of energy like right in the middle of a season would be. I think it's a huge advantage. Um, Doug, you you know, it's when you get to this time of year. You need something to sometimes get you going, and to have a young guy who is who comes in with that kind of energy, it could boost you and push you towards the, the finish line, which is at the end of the day what the Padres are shooting for. So it would be it would be huge to say the least to have get Fernando back. I'm sure AJ is going is planning to make like nine deals at the deadline, but that would that would be the biggest deal that he could make. No doubt. Um, you know, Fernando has a chance to be the face of the, the Padres, much in the way your father was once upon a time. And, you know, your father handled that so well. I wonder what you remember growing up about the way your dad handled being that guy on his team. You know, I think for a lot of it, I was too young to really, like, understand and grasp when it was probably at its height when he was at his peak and it was at his at at its height but I did catch the the end of it and I just think my dad kept it simple much like he talked about hitting you know keeping it simple I think he kept that part simple he he understood his um his responsibility as a player 
um, not only for the Padres, but for Major League Baseball um, to make sure that fans felt close in some way. Um, even if he never had a conversation with him, he knew it was part of his duty to bring people closer to the game. And so from there, it's just my dad's natural personality. You know, if you, my dad enjoyed a good conversation. So whether you were the, 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 the field crew guys or the maintenance people that work on the field or the clubhouse attendant or his teammate, um, when you, well, if it was a, a subject that piqued his interest, you might as well grab a seat because it was going to be a, a long conversation. And <laughs> I think his personality made people feel like they knew him even when they didn't. So he was just himself, but I think he recognized there was there was an effort that had to be made in order to engage people to to be the ambassador that he was. Yeah, and I think of you know, how he, you know, first of all, I came up '96. And I remember like one really cool thing is like, I think my first year or part of a year I had like, uh, I might have like a better two strike batting average than your dad or something crazy. Right? I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, I see my name and I see Gwyn. <laughs> so I was like, I've arrived. <laughs> uh, but so I'm, I'm curious how, you know, from a legacy, like how he sort of envisioned passing the game on to you. Was there, was it through, you know, I guess I just leave it open ended. Like, what? How did he do that, or what was it through by which he wanted to preserve the game in in, in your generation through his family? I, I think his his idea was was having me around. It. My dad never forced me to play baseball, and I think he understood because he he actually he didn't want my name to be he didn't want to be me to be named after him. Um, I think he knew the the pressures that come with it. Now he obviously didn't win that battle. Um, but <laughs> I, I think he recognized the best way for me to, to follow his footsteps and continue his legacy was to have me around, it. not necessarily push me to play it, but just have me around it, have me absorb it, have me around the clubhouse, have me around the field, because this game is, is tough. And if you're going to play it, for, you know, as a professional, you're going to need to love it because this is not a game you can like and and make it very far. It, it, you will burn out very quickly. And so I think by not pressing me to play, I was able to kind of develop a love for it on my own. And, you know, from there, it, it, it just rolled downhill. You know, I, I was I was blessed enough uh, with enough talent to be able to play it. And, you know, there's, there's, I don't know if there's a better feeling than getting in that box and, and getting your foot down and hitting the line drive somewhere. And I, I enjoyed that very much. And so once I developed the love of it on my own, I just think he just stepped out of the way. It wasn't until I was going into my senior year of high school that, and I had to go to him at this point and ask him, you know, you know, how do I, how do I do this? You know, how do I, how do I, do a better job of, 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 of this. And at that point he became like this open treasure chest of, of information up until that point, he might've said two words to me about it. <laughs> How often do people tell you, you sound exactly like your father? Every day. <laughs> Every, day. <laughs> Every day. So true. But you know, it's, 
yeah. I, I look at it as as a gift of of especially considering I'm on the radio so often. It's a way. Uh, it's another way that people can remain close to them. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's and it's funny you say that, Tony, because uh, it's hard to hear yourself in a certain way. You know, I know we you know get feedback, but this is what always baffled me. So my mom was from North Carolina, uh, and in the, you know born in 1937. My dad was from Trinidad and Tobago, and he clearly had an accent. Or you know, I knew growing up, I just my dad had an accent, and it was always baffling to me that I'd pick up the phone and they'd think I was my dad. <laughs> I was like, dude, that guy's from Trinidad, okay? Like, I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> and, and, uh, and yet it was like, so it, sometimes it's just the cadence, right? And the, that's, and, uh, that's exactly and right. That's how, the cadence, <laughs> I, I know it, it, didn't, it didn't register for me until, you know, people would call the house and they'd ask for Tony. And sometimes they'd get me, sometimes they'd get my dad. And it would be it would be interesting to see how those conversations went when it wasn't for one of us. You know, it, it, it took at least about 15, 20 seconds before there was a realization that they weren't talking to who they wanted. To be talking to. <laughs> well, well, let me let me say this, because I, I think about it all the time. Your voice is not all you share with your dad. Um, you got a positivity and a smile and a sense of humor likability, feel for the game, that all remind me so much of your father. And I, I, I feel like you've done such a great job um, kind of forging your own path and yet honoring everything that made your father such a beloved guy. But I wonder, how hard was that balancing act, you know, being you and carving your own path and yet honoring your dad? Um, I don't think it was hard, not for me at least. I... I... I don't know, for whatever reason, at an early age, I understood, you know, what was going on around me in terms of my dad and us sharing the same name. Um, I, I've always, I mean, listen, my dad was one of the greats in terms of, of being able to swing a bat. And um, I, at, at an early age, I recognized that that was a high bar, but I felt like if I shot for that and I came underneath it, I would be able to hold my head high regardless. And so I, I, I embrace that. You know, I, I know a lot of guys, former players, kids that, you know, didn't necessarily embrace it. And um, for me, it was easier to embrace it. My dad, I love my dad to death. He's, he's like, he's, he was my hero growing up. So of course I would want to embrace him and, and embrace everything that came with it. Even if that meant that if I walked the same path, he walked, that it was gonna it was gonna be difficult, but I was okay with that. Um, what lessons did you learn? Have you learned in a big league locker room with your dad? <laughs> I learned a lot of lessons. You know, growing up uh, as in, in the Gwen household, <laughs> when I was about, I would say I was about eight. I didn't I didn't understand that. 300 wasn't the norm. I thought that, that <laughs> I did. I thought that was, I thought that was the norm. And, and I'll share this story with you guys. Everybody hit 300. Well, right? I mean, that, that's what my dad was in. So I just assumed this was, this was before I could pick up a paper and look at the, the batting loop. So um, I, it didn't dawn on me until one day I, I got the opportunity to go to the field with my dad. My dad was, was a, a very serious individual when it came to the ball yard, you know, 
I remember him sitting me down and telling me, listen, son, this is, I know this is a game to you, but this is guy's livelihood. This is a, a business in here. So you have fun, but also recognize that these guys are here to work and they have a job to do. And so I remember getting into a conversation with Scott Livingston and, and Brad Osmus. Brad Osmus was, he might've been in his rookie season and he was hitting some, something somewhere in the twos and eight year old me began to kind of go in on him about hitting, you know, two whatever, not even knowing that I was really being, you know, kind of disrespectful in, in some ways. And so I think uh, Brad and Scott, they felt some type of way about it. And it's about 6.30 before a 7.05 game. So, you know, guys are pretty much filtering out to the field to get themselves ready for the game. And so uh, those two came back in. They tied me up. Oh, no. Hands and legs. (laughs) And threw me into the dirty clothes bin. And no one was in there. For the you know the game had started. It wasn't until Tony Caprica, the, the clubhouse manager, came in, he untied me, he get me. I'm in tears, and so my dad obviously heard what happened at some point. And, I, and on the ride home, he, uh, he 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 just turned to me. He said, "You know what you did wrong there," and I said, "Yeah, I know what I did wrong." So I told you this is this is a job for people. You can't just. You and I can go back and forth and, and play around, but not everybody's gonna gonna take that the same way. And that was one of the first lessons I learned in terms of this is this is serious for these guys. It's it's a game for eight year old me, but when you're an adult playing in Major League Baseball, it's not a game. It, I mean, it is a game, but it, it's also a livelihood for these guys. Yeah, man. Well, I mean, and one thing you know, I don't know if you might know this story uh, at least in, indirectly, but. Uh, so I remember going to then, I guess it was Jack, Jack Murphy in San Diego, and I was playing left field or, you know, center left in different times and later in my career. Uh, and I was like, well, why is that bank of lights off? You know, I think it was going from center going towards left field. And I noticed there was a whole bank of lights that were off. And I was like, they, you know, is it some power issue? And I learned your dad would have them turn off a bank of lights because a lot of the low line drives in San Diego would get in that light bank and he would lose the ball. So he literally had it off, completely off. I did not know that story. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I did not know so, that yeah, story, I but asking. I did notice that those lights were off. And it, as a kid, it used to yeah. drive me nuts. It was like, why don't they just turn <laughs> all the lights on? But I never knew that he had, had the, the second lower lights turned it, off. It, it, yeah, because and it was true. Like I, I do. I mean, it was later. I mean, this was actually the you know the Petco years. I actually, I didn't, I didn't lose very many balls in life for just probably just sheer luck on that. But I remember losing one at Petco and still somehow catching it. And it was the first thing I thought. I was like, all right, clearly they're not listening to the legacy of Tony Gwynn here because <laughs> they have lights on. <laughs> yeah, you didn't. Doug, did you ever get a chance uh, to participate jump? in that in that part? Yeah. <laughs> Doug, did you ever dump any visiting kids in the laundry bin? I did not, but uh, I can totally envision it, however, <laughs> completely. Especially if Brad Osmus was, was involved. Yeah. Anything was possible. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you got to play for your father at San Diego State. What was the best part about that? Uh, getting to spend as much time 
as as we got to spend together. That was the first time, you know, normally schedules didn't lie. I'd get to see him, you know, sporadically during the school year, during the off season, because he was home. He'd be at all my basketball games. But then come February, you know, I didn't see him very often. I was at school. He was at the park um, until the summer. So this was the first year because he went from being the hitting coach my freshman year, my sophomore year, to being the head coach my junior year. So we got to spend like every day together. And that was completely different than really any point of my life that I could remember and just getting a chance to play for him. My dad, his first year, especially, he really tried to let guys, you know, figure it out, let them be them. Um, I think he learned, you know, later on that he couldn't do that with college kids because we didn't know what we were doing. So he had to be more <laughs> hands on. Um, but I, that's, that's, that's probably my favorite year playing balls, just, getting an opportunity to be around them on an everyday basis, getting to see, um, you know, it was, it wasn't really until then that I, I started to really understand his, his greatness as a hitter. We, we had a situation my junior year. Um, and this story has probably been told a few times, but he was just upset with us because we just were not hitting the ball right in batting practice. And he just was, he was beside himself. And mind you, my dad hadn't picked up a bat since that last swing he took in um, at, at, at Jack Murphy, his last game. And so he decided he was so frustrated that he was going to get in there. And now this is in a, a, a simulation game. One of our lefties was hurt and he was rehabbing, coming back. And so he got in there and, and I'm standing on second base. So I'm kind of I'm looking directly at it you got a, a bunch of kids <laughs> surrounding the cage so the first pitch the lefty throws he hits a bullet in the in the right center and he did that for about three swings and then on the on the fifth swing he took i don't remember if it was breaking ball or fastball i just remember him at, i mean literally ball out of hand saying heads up and missile <laughs> right by the, the pitcher's head <laughs> And at that point, you know, I knew my dad was was very special, but you know, basically to call his shot on a on direction of where it was going um, was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen with that. Oh, that's so classic. Hey, I I do know one downside of you playing for your dad. I, let me just say I have a highly placed source who told me that you once went to your mom and said that your dad let everybody else on that team get settled in the box except you. So is that true? And what was going on there? You, I was, uh, I was a, um, I like to, I like to change things up too often. And my dad was not a, was not a fan of that. And so I must, I, I don't know if I was, I think at the time I was searching that was struggling a little bit. I tried wide i tried shorten i tried open and i think he was just tired of of seeing me move back and forth and i think he said something like pick one i think he said something <laughs> but i do remember it uh and it was you know my dad had a, a very interesting way when we used to work uh to let me know that he didn't uh he didn't like to swing he would he he would just say nope nope 
<laughs> wouldn't wouldn't give you wouldn't give you any instruction other than nope. And then when you hit it right, he didn't say anything. He just put the ball on the tee. So uh, a, a lot in those lines, I ended up going to my mom, and, and I don't even know if I went to my mom. I think it was it came up because he said something to her, and then I kind of like you know he's the one pressing me while everybody else gets to do what they want. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I mean, I, I also think of like trying to defend your dad, right? And, you know, you know, you know, the meetings, right? You go in and you go over all these hitters and like, oh, yeah, bust them in, you know, soft away, change up, breaking, throw a knuckleball 3-0, you know, you have all these ideas. And, and it's like your dad was one of those, it was like Barry Bonds. There's always a couple of guys that like pin drop in the room kind yeah. of thing. Like, how do you get this guy out? It's like. I don't know. <laughs> it's like just I don't know. Hope he hits it at somebody, and and it was always funny. You, you hear about the you know the five hole right? You know the hitting it, the five point five right? Hit it to the left side. So we would like shift people over. I mean, it wasn't a shift like it is today. Right. And I'd be like cheating over in center field, and it, and it seemed like no matter how far I went, he just hit the ball away from you. You know, it's like it's like does he see this stuff? Like he is he he must be peeking or something. No, he, he... it's like I mean it was. It was so fun to watch. It was so fun. Even as him destroying us, it was fun to <laughs> he, watch. Uh, he just, I, I remember Barry Bonds used to, at, at Qualcomm, used to come in. I mean, he would basically be on the left field line and in. And he would just <laughs> dare my dad to hit it into the to the left center field gap. And, you know, it was probably, Barry probably took away at least, I don't know, six, seven doubles doing it. Uh, but there were the times where he would hit one in the gap, and it was a much longer run for him. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, my, he, he he had the ability to hit the ball where he wanted to. Now, I will tell, you, I will confess that I, I remember when I was in San Diego in, in 2010, and uh, we had just faced a Baldo Jimenez, throwing like 101 with the with with the thing. Yeah. I do remember recall my dad coming down after the game and just be like, man. I don't know if I could. I don't know if I could hit in this league right now. So the things that they yeah. have going right now are are just. It's just different. Because I'm used to. You know, I'm not. It's not that the velocity is, is. Is it would scare me, but everybody's throwing the same velocity. So I don't know. He 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 was with the bat in his hand. I mean, for me, my my favorite part about Washington was actually batting practice because that was where you really got to see the artistry of of what he was doing with the bat. I mean, it was like a, it was like a routine. He just lined balls in that five, five hole. And then he'd have a round where he'd go, try to go deep left, deep center, deep right. And the mere fact that he did it most of the time was, I always found that to be amazing. You know, since you went there, this is something I wonder about all the time. How would your dad have fared in today's game? Uh, He was, he was the opposite of a three true outcomes guy. <laughs> Never struck out. He used the whole field. I mean, I think he would have been fine. I, but I think, but um, is there any chance he would have tried to beat Joey Gallo? Because that's what guys do now. <laughs> I, I think what I think what my dad would have done. Honestly, I think he would have ended up walking more. You know, my dad wasn't a guy who, who who walked a lot, but he was smart. If he knew guys couldn't throw the ball for a strike. He would take his walk. And so for a guy, you know, who didn't walk a lot, um, I think he'd still get his his hits because, you know, velocity was never something that 
bothered him. You, if you recall, my dad was all the way up in the front of the box. He had a problem waiting most of the time. And so I don't think velocity would be an issue. I think these guys pitching at the top of the zone wouldn't have fared. My dad didn't, didn't believe, wouldn't have believed in launching. So um, it the swing is still the swing. And if velocity isn't going to be a game changer, the thing I think would have happened more is he would have walked more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, of, and, he, and he didn't use a, a big no. bat, right? I mean, from what I recall, like it was a 32 inches he, or it was short. He used 32 Late. early, but it, most of his career was 33, 30 and a half ounces. Yeah. Wow. Basically, you know, it, it, bat, right? <laughs> you know, I was thinking about uh, your father, too, because I just wrote a piece about the Cal Ripken streak and whether any record today or any chase of any record today could have the same power that that Cal Ripken had. And one of the things we talked about was hitting 400. And look, I think about 1994, your father was hitting 394 when the strike hit. And he never got a chance. We never got a chance to see if he could have hit 400. Um, I mean, how much do you think about the what ifs there, and what would it have meant to him to do that? You know, what's interesting is I, I actually think it would be more feasible now, right? Because his big, right. his his biggest issue was that he didn't walk enough. He had put he had too many plate appearances and. You got to be even more efficient then at that point. And so if he's walking more and still getting the same hits, I think it would have been feasible now. But if we're talking about 94, I mean, that was as, as locked in as I ever, ever seen my dad. It, I don't know. It, I know it wasn't two hits a night, but it felt like two hits a night. And um, it didn't matter who was on the mound. Um and he would tell you, he used that one bat for, for the entire year, the, the seven grains of pain bat. That's crazy. And that, but, but that's how you know he was locked in. Because even when you're going good, there's at least, I don't know, a dozen swings in that streak there that you get jammed and you hit it in the wrong spot. But if I remember looking at that bat, I mean, all of the ball marks were in the same spot, maybe centimeters off of each other and so um he he it, it's unfortunate that the, the strike happened at that point because i i think he didn't admit to it until later but i think we all felt like it, it was, had a good chance to happen so wait a minute now so let me help me so you're saying that he didn't break a bat the entire season is that what you're telling me I'm saying that, that right. I don't know if it was the entire season, but I know for the majority of the yeah. season, he did not break that bat. He ended up after the strike season was or the, the strike ended. Um, he broke it in batting practice on the backfields. Rob Piccolo ended up sawing him off or something. Uh -huh. I, I remember the quote was something along the lines of I was hurt and Rob Piccolo said I was too. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I asked that incredulously because I broke like 12 bats a week. So I'm just trying to understand. <laughs> me too, like, me too. I mean, I, <laughs> I was like, how in the world? Uh, I mean, when I first signed, I mean, and I played a little bit of wood bat summer league, but I still was inexperienced. I was 19 and turned 20. 
And my first batting practice, I think Billy Williams was a roving hitting instructor. And he's like, son, let me see how you're holding that bat. And I had the label facing the catcher. I was hitting with the bottom of the bat. And, it, and I had to learn, like, label up or label down. Right. And I, I had no idea, like, that's where the, you know, the hit, you know. So I learned that, like, first week professionally. Uh, so the idea of not breaking a bat, I mean, I was always early, you know, just <laughs> pulling off or something. So, I mean, I was like, oh, you're not going to jam me. So I broke it off the end, like, every day instead. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Yeah, that, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah the greens. Do you, do you know what what model bat? Was it his own model or it, it, did he? It have was one? his own. It was a B two sixty seven that he used, which is a, a big barrel, thicker handle bat. Uh, and you know that was a bat that, that I grew up on basically. So I didn't use anything different once I started playing. But uh, yeah, that was his bat. He uh, he never changed it. It never wavered. He even, I mean, when Maple came in to to play Maple Bats, you know, he was he kind of was indifferent about Maple. I mean, I think he recognized that it was harder, but I think he liked the flex of of Ash, um, and so that's what he he really stuck to. So, so I'm gonna claim that he got that from me just to be fun because, like, I didn't I didn't change the Maple either. I knew that, right? <laughs> I had. I just let it flake apart until, you know, <laughs> and the thing with ass is like, you know, it just gradually flaked and you didn't know when it was going to break. And right. it didn't like break in half though. No, like it, shards flying at people. It just, it just it, exactly you know. like, like a crapple <laughs> going everywhere with, with the ash. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's true. When you think back on it, it felt like he hit every ball on the barrel. So how could he possibly break his bat? <laughs> Squared up everything. That's remarkable. Yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, Tony. I was, well, I was thinking, Jay, but just thinking, Tony, about your like moving into the the next stage, right? You you played your career, and you know you had a certain passion, a certain love, and you're sharing that in a very different platform now. And I I relate so well to where you are because you know I had a you know decent sized career and. I was like, what's next? And I did, you know, my wife used to say, you're doing your accidental real estate development, accidental, it was all these accidental things. And finally I was like, all right, what am I doing here, right? So uh, so I finally found, you know, it was the moment I started writing was the moment the Mitchell report broke about PEDs in the game. And I remember just looking at the coverage and like, there's a lot of name calling. <laughs> there's a lot of name naming. There's gotta be more to it. And as a player, I was like, well, let's just explore the humanity of these players and like what else drives them to feel like they need to go down this road. It's not just greed and money. It's got to be more than that, right? And I was able to write about the insecurity and the fear of getting replaced all the time, right? And not only competing against the guys in the other dugout, but the guys in your own dugout for jobs. And that kind of opened up the conversation. That was my moment. And I found that this was a real reciprocal experience in writing and it kind of led, one thing led to the other. Um, so I'm curious, like your journey of, you know, trying to figure out who you are off with the cleats off and also having this tremendous legacy with you and, and transitioning it uh, to where you are now. Just curious how that how that went for you. Well, I would say about 2012, I was with the Dodgers. I, I kind of I, I started kind of planning ahead. You know, one of the things that I was privy to as a young kid is is seeing my dad's teammates, former teammates get out of the game and then not really 
adapt well. And, you know, when you see that um, to people you think are super superheroes, it has an effect on you. So I, I, I was, I was, um, I wanted to make meaningful steps uh, to make sure when baseball ended that I had, that I knew what I wanted to do. And so I, I met with different people in terms of front offices and, and I got to know some of the people behind the mic a little bit. Um, not really knowing exactly what I wanted to do, but I, I was just exploring. Um, I, I had the time, I had a, a really young family um, and I didn't know if starting over from scratch in the coaching realm would be feasible. I had already spent a, a lot of time away from my family and it's, it's my number one priority. And so um, you're weighing, you know, I knew I wanted to be around the game of baseball because I love it. I have a passion for it. Um, but I also didn't know where that was going to take me. And so um, I got an opportunity to, to occasionally guest on, on some local stations for, for, for World Series. And what I found is that I, I, had, a, I had a pretty good uh, idea of how to deliver a, a very complicated game um, in a way that, you know, it was digestible. And um, from there, the light kind of went on, you know, I, I kind of realized um, that I, A, I like doing, it, you know, and B, that I was, I was decent at it. And so from there, it was about getting to practice, you know, so I, I got the opportunity to do pre and post games for the Dodgers in 2016, I did 157, including the playoffs. And, you know, it was rough at times, you know, because, you know, I, I, I'm de you're dealing with a, a Los Angeles fan base that is uh, a lot more straightforward than than maybe San Diego's fan base. They don't necessarily want you to, to sugarcoat things. They want you to go. And so that was difficult for me, being so fresh out the game, trying to to learn how to be critical of guys that yeah. literally I had just played with maybe three years before. <laughs> um, and so that, you know, going down that line, that was kind of opened me up. And then from there, I just, you know, wanted to keep pursuing it. You know, I, I didn't know I would end up in San Diego, but as it, as it worked out, I did. And um, it's been a lot of fun. I, the last two years was tough, obviously, because we weren't, it wasn't the job that I, I signed up for with the with COVID happening and you're not really getting the chance to develop relationships with guys and, and really be able to tell the story. Um, that was difficult, but um, I, I knew probably two or three years, two years before I retired that I was heading in a direction like this. You know, I think people take broadcasting and broadcasters for granted, um, and especially guys who once played the game. I, you know, I've seen the, the, what Doug does, what Doug puts into it to be as great as he is. What did you have to do to become such an excellent, insightful, attentive broadcaster like you are now? It's a good question. I, I think for me, it's, it's about continuing to, to watch the game and learn the game because it's, it's, as though I know I played it for a long time, but it's changing. And I need to be on top of those changes um, because the value I have is my experience on the field. And what the better I can understand these new adjustments, the better 
um, I can continue to deliver the story. And and so for me, it, it's really been about reps and just staying plugged into the game. You know, even if it's not the Padres, um, getting a chance to, you know, watch different broadcasters, listen to different broadcasters. Um, all of that is are things that I enjoy doing. So it's not really work, I guess, but um, it certainly is something I um, I try to do because I certainly know I'm, I, I don't have it all covered. And I, it, the better I can be and the better I can deliver the story, I think the more people will enjoy the game. Uh, Tony, how, how should people in baseball remember your dad? And not just your dad, but the whole Gwynn family, uh, your mom, uh, your uncle, you know, his brother Chris, uh, and, and your dad and you. Hmm. As, uh, as genuine people, that people that wanted to do good uh, uh, and leave the place better than they had it when they, they were here. I mean, that has been... Uh, really the motto of, of all the Gwyns um, in, in our family. You know, we um, enjoy people. We enjoy, um, we enjoy helping people. And, you know, if we leave this place better than it was when we, we came, then um, even if that's only touching, you know, if, I, if, if we only touched five, six people and, and, and that is, is the end of it, that's great. We, we, we've affected change in some way. You know, I wanted to include your mom in that because uh, we, we've seen her in Cooperstown a, a couple of times. And I, I know everything that she did for your father and your family. And, you know, seeing her in Cooperstown, it's a reminder, she's still a part of it. Um, I'm so glad she's there. Hope to see her again in a few weeks. H how would you put into words what your mom has meant to the Gwyns and their baseball journey. Listen, none, of, none of what we've talked about today is possible without her, including the success of my dad. Um, my, my mom was my dad's first hitting coach, really. Uh, she was <laughs> the first one to hit the recorder on the videotape to record his at-bats. Uh, and she would certainly let him know when his swing wasn't right. And, um, you know, now aside from the baseball stuff, I mean, when you're a, when when you're a, a wife of of a, of, a, of a man that's playing in Major League Baseball um, during the season, you're, you're basically mom and dad if you have children, because dad is working on his craft. So you have to play the role of both parents. And my mom had to do that with the, my sister and I. Um, and at least until we were of age where we could take care of ourselves. And um, that means also giving up, you know, things that she wants to do. And she was willing to make those sacrifices. Um, my mom is, is she's, she's, she's the one, she's the straw that stirs the drink for sure. And without her, um, I think if my dad was here, he would tell you that there, there is no Tony Gwynn. Um, there certainly isn't no Tony Gwynn Jr. Um, because he, <laughs> She was, she was the, my foundation of who I am is, is just as much about her as it is about my dad. And, and, and Tony, I know we, we talked the last time um, when I was out for the, the Brave Series in April. And, uh, you know, one thing we talk about legacy and, and improving the world and leaving it better. 
I guess some of this is, you know, maybe what your dad thought, but really, you know, your sensibility around this, about how sports can help us inform, you know, society, right, and how we can make change. And are there any lessons that stand out about what baseball has taught you through not only your experience on the field, but through your family? Yeah about how it can be a way to bring people together around issues. Baseball is, is a, to me, has always been a microcosm of, of our world that we live in. And um, it's rare that you get so many guys from completely different backgrounds, right? And the objective is to get them to all pull the rope in the same direction. And um, whether it's, you know, kids from the South, kids from the West, wherever, from the Dominican, international, you come in and you are a team and you are trying to go in the same direction. And even if, a lot of times, even if there's one guy not pulling in that direction, it'll stop the other guys from moving where they want to go. Um, and we see it constantly work the right way as a team in baseball. Um, guys, as I said, from different backgrounds, may not see eye to eye on every issue, but they can come together for one cause to make to make it happen. And I think when you look at really, I think sports in general, um, you can make that connection in terms of how it translates into the regular world. You know, we may not all see the eye to eye on, on a lot of issues, but we certainly can come together if we understand one another, if we get to know one another, um, there's a, there's room to there's room to make that happen. So so true, uh, Tony. Look, it's been so special to have you visit us uh, here in Starkville. Uh, I'm sorry the weather's not as balmy as San Diego, but <laughs> hey, you can't beat the conversation anyway. So thank it's, you so much, my it's friend. It's a good thing it's an off day, so I'll be in this room most of the day. So we're good. <laughs> that is good hey thank you it's really been a pleasure fantastic yeah, thank you guys for having me All i appreciate right. it when you get injured you don't want to wait for answers and options that's why it may be time to explore the nano experience a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation all through a barely there poke hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash the athletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Postoperative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention 
into themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes, but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra-soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. Okay, Doug, it's that time again. It is time for the world famous listener trivia segment. Our way of involving you, our favorite listeners in this show. We'll tell you how you can be a part of this segment in just a few minutes. But first, an important update. Uh, Doug, Ken Rosenthal and I didn't fare any better at trivia last week than you and I do. Does that make you feel any better? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit better. A little bit better. Yeah, I think I, I, I was the difference maker between getting it wrong and or epically wrong. So I think that's that's progress. <laughs> uh, something like that. Uh, you know, tr- look, trivia is hard. Okay, that just we've learned that oh, yeah. the, the hard way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I just had this feeling today could be our day, or, or not our day, but. <laughs> Whatever. Let, let, let's welcome in this week's special trivia guest star. It is Lindsey Barnes making his Starkville debut. Lindsey, yeah. welcome. Thanks, Jason. Good to be here. We appreciate you joining us. Um, Absolutely. So, Lindsey, before we get to your question, um, I know you're an Orioles fan, but you're not just any Orioles fan. Uh, is, is it true that you came up with the... I guess it's the unofficial name for the new reconfigured left field <laughs> corner at Camden Yards. So that, that, that name is Elrod's Corner. That's your work. I don't know if I'm the only one who thought of it, but I, I <laughs> tried to beat the drum to, to, to make that happen. I, I remember when they released the, uh, the, the, the artist renderings of what that would look like. Uh, and saw that there was this odd right angle in left center uh, at, at Camden Yards and, and thought, you know, this needs to have a name uh, <laughs> similar to, you know, and the first place I went was like Pesky's Pole at Fenway. Yeah, right. uh, that it should be named after an Oriole one kind or another. And so the first name I thought of was, uh, had to do with uh, the great Orioles catcher and later bullpen coach, as I knew him, uh, Elrod Hendricks, uh, who's, of course, a legendary catcher for the Orioles, but also um, known to my generation mostly as uh, the very friendly toward kids uh, uh, bullpen coach who used to always have fun, you know, bantering with kids and uh, who would be who would be right up against that that fence uh, uh, where where the, the corner in the outfield now is. Uh, so I, you know, I tweeted it out. I, I tagged a couple of, you know, Orioles folks in, in the hopes that somebody would hear about it and lo and behold months later uh it seems to have caught on nice wow and, and isn't it true that they actually mentioned your name on one of the orioles telecasts <laughs> they did kevin brown uh at masson uh was uh, was one of the folks that i had reached out to about the name and he liked it and 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 you know saw fit to to credit me with it uh during the broadcast on the the uh, the roof net door triple that was the first 
<laughs> at Camden Yards to sort of rattle around in that, that corner. So uh, I think he'd been waiting for his moment. Wow. <laughs> Love that. Well, uh, look, Elrod was a very kind man. So, I, that, so that means that you will definitely be, you'll go gentle on us with your question. <laughs> all right. I'll do, I'll do my best. All right. Let's hear it. All right. Yadier Molina leads all active major league players with nine career gold gloves, except one. This is a pretty straightforward question. Who is the other co-leader among active players in career gold gloves? Also has nine gold gloves. Okay. Uh, well, Doug, w once again, we're in sync with your new trivia mandate. Uh, we're only going to do <laughs> trivia questions with one answer as opposed to like 12. <laughs> so, I, so I guess that's good. The only trouble is we can't ever get partial credit now when we get it wrong. Get, so I hope you're happy with partial, Well, we don't get partial credit anyway. I've been lobbying for partial credit, but I, we get six out of seven. You're like, it's wrong. It's completely wrong. It's like, I don't know. So. Yeah. No, you've had so many lately where it's you got to run five and it's got to be somebody under 30 when the moon is in Aquarius and all that. So no, I, I want to make this as straightforward as possible. Yeah, no, like whatever, whatever, however the question goes, we almost get it, but then we don't. <laughs> so anyway, the more I think about your question, the harder it gets, because nine gold gloves means you have to have played a long time. And, you know, that eliminates guys like Manny Machado, who uh, we already had Tony Gwynn Jr. talking about how he didn't win as many as he should. Eliminates Mookie, he certainly hadn't played nine years. My first instinct was Nolan Arenado, since he wins a gold glove every year. But then I started thinking, has he played nine years? And it's close. So let, let's just kind of put him aside and think about it. Uh, Paul Goldschmidt, who plays in the same infield in St. Louis, another guy, same category, but I'm not yeah, sure if nine, he's nine years. He also has yeah. one every year. So I'm going to say no, no. on him. Um, Salvador Perez, he's mm. he's a guy I think we have to think about. I got one more, Doug. How about Zach Grinke? Mm. Been around forever. Yeah, uh, I think he's won a lot of Gold Gloves. So like I feel it's like somebody from that group, him, Salvi, Arenado. So now you you can help us figure this out, man. What are your thoughts? I mean, I. I have the same thoughts. I mean, I right away went to Nolan Arenado, uh, assuming he won every single year, which why would he ever lose? He I mean, he, he, you know, McMahon, he was, you know, he could have gotten beaten last year. Uh, well, he's got Manny he in the same league too, but now. Yeah, but um, he still pulled it off. Uh, so that was right away. That's the first name. I thought about Zach Greinke for sure. I don't know how many he's won lately. Uh, he's played a long time, obviously. Now, we had some trivia question with wasn't it something to do with home runs or something or something with Zach? I don't remember he, hearing. He was nine. the answer to some question that we have no idea what the, what he was the answer to. But it, it was yeah. one. It was a, it was a bunch of pitchers. I thought it had to do with Cy Youngs and Gold Gloves or something. And uh, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember how many he had. Yeah, I didn't think. And then I thought about a catcher, another catcher, and Sal Perez. So in short, I do think <clears throat> I think we're on the same page. I mean, it could be someone we're missing. I, I say we go with. Career longevity and, and go Granky, but I'll I'll defer to you. Granky, you're, you're the defensive yeah. wizard in the in the group here. Oh, see, that's a tough. 
Cranky. How many years has Cranky pitched? Uh, he's 16? probably like 18, 19, somewhere in there, right? It's Gosh. really a lot. Man, I mean, here's the thing. If it is Granky, Arenado has like eight. I mean, I'm telling you, it's, it's got to be close. All right, can we figure out when did he come up? What, what would be the issue with Arenado? Is it just right. that he didn't have enough years? Okay, right. That's Our only concern is, has he played nine years? So let's think about this. Yes. All right, he signs the extension in Colorado in, pretty sure that was 2019. So he's, since then he's played 19, 20, and 21. He definitely did not have six gold gloves at the time he signed. He, he wouldn't. Because then he, then he would have been eligible for free agency, and he was signing an extension, so he wouldn't go to free agency. So I'm going to say he doesn't Eight. quite have nine. That's what I All think. Right. All right, that, I, that's what I wanted to hear. I mean, I'll, yeah, then I would go with Granky. I mean, I mean Salvador Perez. I mean, he, has he won every year? No, because wait, <laughs> no, I don't know if he. No, no. I don't think he has. He's okay. All right, okay. So, so I, I like it. All right, Zach Granky. Uh, okay, Lindsay, I, I I know we have a shot at this. I'm sure we talked ourselves out of the right answer as usual, but let's find out. Lindsay, is there any shot? The answer to your question is Zach Greinke. Zach Greinke is the leading gold glove winner among active pitchers with six. Uh, He is not the co-leader with Yadier Molina as uh, as among all active gold gloves with nine. Do you want me to tell you who it is? Yeah, that's. I mean, well, we didn't did, even mention. Did we mention did we even him? mention him? It's Nolan Arenado. It is. Oh no, <laughs> Doug. As always, we had it. We talked ourselves out of it. How do we do this every week? Uh, well, you had, because, well, you had logic behind that one. That, that you was one. Did. That, that, Arenado yeah. is the first infielder to win a Gold Glove in each of his first nine seasons. Uh. Yeah, uh, so I, you were you were so close there with we, the focus on the on the number of years, but remarkably, <laughs> he's won it every year. I know, yeah, I know he's won it every year. The question was the years. Was I, I, you know, I don't even. That made sense. Six Gold Gloves by the time he got to free agent, but then he signed early. He so, came up, yeah. He, you know, he he didn't nine, the, nine. the first year he didn't play a full season, but you know, I can't even remember how horrible our record is anymore. <laughs> we, let's let's ask the mayor, Tim. How, how bad are we? I lost track. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's you usually best. keep That's track, okay. so I'll, I'll go do some math for next week. We'll get back. Uh, okay, that'd be good because I've it's gotten away from me. We had you know, get Doug was out, then we had Ken here. We had, like, I, don't, I was out. It's hard to keep track. Whatever. Whether we get the questions right or wrong, the best part of this segment is coming up because that's the one where we get the heck out of the way and we bring in the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, to play another great play-by-play clip involving. This week's answer. So, Tim, take over and save us, man. This was a treat. I could I could watch Nolan Arenado playing third base just all yeah. day long. So there's no like specific like, oh, remember that time he did it in game four of the World Series or anything like that. It was just like going through play after play after play, <laughs> basically looking for a good call to go with the play because they're all like, oh, my, he did it again. Oh, it's just. Nolan. <laughs> so uh, so here's a typical Nolan Arenado gem from third base with the Cardinals, not the Rockets. Remarkable plays you'll see on both ends. 
you can kind of envision the typical Nolan yeah, Arenado yeah. diving yeah. stop <laughs> ridiculous throw from third base. I, I, I was sure you were going to do the one from Colorado where he he like he went up the uh, the tarp roll and went up in the stands and I, you know what the problem yeah, with that one was because I did I did watch that one. Uh, he he from his knees on the tarp tried to get the runner at third. Oh, and it like scooted away the... and it made for kind of a funky call on the oh, broadcast because right, yeah, they're right. like, oh, and he almost got the double play, but he didn't. But that one, yeah, that one. And he, that one took a lot out of him. He was, he was banged up after going into the tarp. Yeah. When I did yeah. the baseball stories TV show uh, a few years ago, we had him break down that whole play. It was so much fun. <laughs> but anyway, Lindsay, great question. Yeah. Great work by you. Right. Bad work by us. But it's not your fault. Come back and visit us again sometime in Starkville, okay? Thank you so much, Jason. It was a real treat. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Doug. Strange but true. Well, Doug, it is time for this week's edition of The Strange But True. That's where we look back at something goofy that went on in the last week of baseball. And this week, that revolves around something that Austin Hayes did Wednesday for the Orioles. Uh, can we hear that thing? Got to hear that thing. He has an infield single and a run scored. He has a solo homer and he has a triple. He needs the double. Slider driven toward left center field. Long chase for Thomas. He's not going to get it. It's down and bouncing off the wall. Headed home is Nevin. Headed home is Mateo. And stopping at second hitting for the cycle is Austin Hayes. And they're going crazy. Here at Camden Yards, those remaining. Austin Hayes hits for the cycle in four at-bats. Yeah, not just four at-bats, six innings, and it's a good thing, but we'll get to that in a second. So maybe you're thinking, so what's so strange but true about a guy hitting for the cycle? We've had three of them this month. Um, all right, let me go through this. I know people love to hear like how I go about writing my Weird and Wild column. This was a big entry in there. So here's what happens. Uh, I, I, I can give you a little timestamp. 11.03 p.m. last Wednesday night, my phone starts rattling on the counter. And who was rattling it? It was uh, my friend Kevin Franzen, who's a broadcaster for the Nationals. He knows what I do. <laughs> so, <laughs> so his text was something to the effect of, yeah, yes, I, I know it's late. Sorry. Just wondered if a, has a player ever hit for the cycle one night after he went 0 for 4 with four punch-outs. So he had the sombrero one night, cycle next night. So I thought, this is a tremendous question. But let me think about this. Like, what time would it be if I started researching it right now by hand, cycle to cycle? So it's 11.03 p.m. I'm thinking, I'm not doing this now. So I told him, good question. I'll get back to you in the morning on it. So the next morning, I asked uh, Katie Sharp of Baseball Reference to look into this because I needed somebody who could write a computer program. Doug, guess how many other guys she found who had ever had a sombrero one night and a cycle <laughs> the next night? Has to be zero. That sounds impossible. <laughs> zero is the correct answer. But... Hang on, because this gets even better. Because not only did Austin Hayes hit for the cycle, he did it in a game that got rained out 
three hitters <laughs> after he hit for this ankle in the sixth oh inning. So that was my next question. Who, like, who's ever hit for a cycle in a game that was range-shortened? Uh, and, like, I didn't even require that it be six innings, just any number lower than nine. So I went to uh, Stats Perform for help with that one. And all right, what do you think the answer to that was, Doug? How many other players have ever hit for the cycle in a game of six innings, seven innings, eight innings, not nine innings? Right. And there was, I guess there was none in the, all the seven inning games last year, right? None, nothing happened there. Rain-shortened uh, game was the question. Rain-shortened. Yeah, I would say zero. It sounds very zero-ish, <laughs> yes. at least. <laughs> you're, you're two for two in this trivia, better than the other yeah. trivia. So, right, it was zero. So, like, let's raise a glass to Austin Hayes because he's the first man ever to hit for the cycle one game after a sombrero and the first man ever to hit for the cycle in a game that didn't even go nine because of rain. It's amazing. So here's what I want to ask you. Anything ever happened to you in a rain-shortened game that you still think about? Well, the the rain... I know, I mean, it's actually not a positive. I, when I, and, it, and it wasn't an official game. So that's what, that's kind of the good part of it. Because you always wonder about, you know, as a player, you get in there, you're like, oh man, I'm two for two and it's raining. You're just like, do not, can't, you know, you're just doing, hoping anything. Now, of course, if you're 0 for two with two strikeouts, you're like, yeah, yeah, rain it out. So you always are very in tune with how you're going into a, a, a rain delay and then what it means for like all the stats involved. So I know in one game, I think it was during my streak, I ended up with a 293-game errorless streak. That's how my career ended. So it was over a bunch of seasons. And um, I want to say it's somewhere in there or somewhere where I was known for my defense. I think it was in Colorado, um, fly ball to center. I I remember I was coming off of an injury, something where I missed a couple games. So I was a little bit off. And there was a fly ball to center field, and I dropped. I just dropped it. It was nothing. It, was, it wasn't hard hit. It wasn't in the gap. It wasn't. It was just a routine, lofty can of corn fly ball to center field, and I dropped it. And it was so crazy to the the Rockies that I think I forgot who hit it, but he had actually peeled off towards the dugout already. He's like, oh, he's caught it, and he and he had to turn around and go back to second base. And the crowd, I remember the crowd's total change of reaction. Like, yeah, so I'd never done that before. And uh, and so I ended up having this streak. But, of course, the rain came in, washed the game out, the err disappeared, <laughs> and you never wow. saw it again. And so, Asterisk so, alert. Uh, yeah, so, um, but, yeah, I have to check if that was in the streak. I think it was, but I, I mean, my memory is not necessarily serving me well. Now, it's funny, you mentioned Golden Sombrero. I, the one thing I need to check is, in my mind, I thought I only struck out once four times in a game, and I don't even know if I did that. I do know a game where Pat Rapp, you remember Pat Rapp? I do. He was a pitcher for the Orioles, Marlins. Had this, he was one of the early cutter adopters. And I was like, what is that? You know, the ball's like going away from you. And I could not figure this pitch out, at least at first. And, uh, and so I know I struck out a couple times, maybe three in a game. And I know Francona, we were in Philly, he pulls me outside in the tunnel is like, dude, you, you don't look like you have a chance of hitting this guy. Uh, we're getting blown out or something. Why don't, you know, you could, if you want, you don't have to hit. You're, I'll take you out of the game. 
so you don't run the risk of being like three strikeouts or whatever it was. And uh, I was like, no, 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 I got to I gotta figure this guy out. I can handle it. And, of course, I struck out again. <laughs> so, so, yeah, Pat Rapp started that that madness. So I do, I, I don't know, that, so three this times. Would, this would have been against who? Which team? So probably Baltimore. In, All I right, think it I got was it. Ve- Veterans Stadium. I looked this it up. Three times? Uh, okay, no, four times. Uh, let's four make time. sure Pat Rapp started. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he didn't start. Sure. Uh, he came, came in. in, though. Jose Mercedes oh. started the game, and then yeah. Pat Rapp came into the game right after him, and Doug Glanville went 0 for 5 with four strikeouts. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, maybe it was because I looked so bad against Rapp before, and I was like, <laughs> I can't figure this guy out. I did eventually hit a home run off him, so I, it, was, there you go. it was it was one glorious moment. Uh, but, yeah, I, and Francona mercifully tried to get me out of the game. He's like, look, don't... <laughs> You don't. You don't have to go up there again. You, you just. You have no chance. Don't. You don't have to do it. And I was like, No, no, no. I can handle it. What? And then I struck out a fourth time. Actually, like your rained out error story. Yeah. Like, we spend so much time every freaking day where we live worrying about the weather, whether it's gonna rain. Uh, I mean, they don't, I know Tony Gwynn Jr. doesn't have to worry about that in San Diego, <laughs> but we do. And now Doug Glanville can tell you, rain is good every once in a while. <laughs> All right, right, that's going to do it for this week's show. We'll be bringing you podcast magic just like this all season long on the Athletic Baseball Show, which is available in its entirety absolutely free everywhere you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to read any of the fantastic writing in the Athletic, including my stuff on rained out, rain shortened cycles, uh, here's how that would work. If you go to theathletic.com slash baseball show and you're a new subscriber, you can subscribe for just $1 a month for the next six months. Also remember, you too can be part of this podcast. You just need to come up with a good trivia question and stump us with it. So to do that, you could email us at Starkville at theathletic.com or there is always the Twitter option. If someone were going to look for Doug Glanville via the Twitter option, is that even possible? Uh, that is, yeah. So you just hit me up at Doug Glanville, just my name, D-O-U-G, another G, L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. And uh, I, I get right back to you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I'm going to successfully spell my name on the first attempt, unlike Doug. Yeah. I, you get three strikes, man. You can find me at J-A-Y. S-O-N-S-T. That's Jason with a Y, S-T. Mm-hmm. Also remember, hashtag those questions, hashtag Starkville QS. So Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Tony Gwynn Jr. for joining us. Thanks to mm-hmm. Lindsey Barnes for the great trivia question. Thanks to the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Tomorrow is Roundtable Day here on the Athletic Baseball Show. And Doug and I, We'll see you next Tuesday on Starkville. Stark 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.